Support for Alleist comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years of Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, with over 200 films May 1st through 10th. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel, and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at laist.com slash events. LAist Studios. This program was made possible in part by a grant from Anne Ray Foundation, a Margaret A. Cargill philanthropy, the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors through the Department of Arts and Culture, the City of Los Angeles Department of Cultural Affairs, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Another round of applause for the, the mother muckers. Now I know. <laughs> that was so fun. I'm Antonia Cerejido. I'm the host of our show, Imperfect Paradise. I didn't hear a lot of podcast listeners, so definitely subscribe. And this is the third of these um, KCET screenings that we've done with Artbound. And I have to say, for me, this is the most personally um, invested, I feel, because I went to journalism school. I'm first generation. And I just feel like a lot of the themes that were brought up in this film are themes that are very personal to me. So I just want to thank you all for your work and also for being so open with your experiences. It's really moving. Um, so I'm going to introduce our, our amazing panelists. Storme Bright Sweet is a documentary filmmaker who was amongst those who formed the Black Filmmakers Collective as part of the independent black cinema movement, along with Ali Day. And uh, she has taught secondary education and lectured at Cal Poly University Pomona. Storme was one of the first female sports agents certified by the National Football League Players Association. She's the executive director of Aaliyah Sweet Fragile Hearts Foundation, providing support for over 5,000 families and granting wishes for siblings of children with severe multiple life-threatening disabilities. Thanks, Storme. Um, Luis Garza began his artistic career as a photojournalist, recording the tumultuous social events of the 1960s and 70s for La Raza magazine, the journalistic voice of the Chicano movement in Los Angeles. He was PR and special market director for the groundbreaking production of Luis Valdez's play Zoot Suit. He's also a KCET celebrity. If you've been watching, he was also in the America Tropical uh, documentary. Uh, Ali Leigh Sharon Larkin is an acclaimed LA Rebellion filmmaker and multicultural artist educator. She continues to create art and media that affirm and celebrate global black life through Dreadlocks and the Three Bears Productions, which produced the award-winning children's video Dreadlocks and the Three Bears, which is now a picture book and the tie-dye music videos. Uh, Moctezuma Esparza is the founder, chair, and CEO of Buena Vista CATV, Maya Cinemas, Maya Pictures, Esparza Cats Productions, um, and also was the producer of one of my favorite films, the 1997's uh, Selena. So thanks so much. 
And um, Ben Caldwell is an arts educator and independent filmmaker. He is the founder of Chaos Network, a community arts center that provides training on digital arts, media arts, and multimedia. It remains the only organization of its kind in South Central Los Angeles and offers courses in video production, animation, website development, and more. Thanks again for being here. Um, also, I want to acknowledge incredible earrings, shoes, and hats. Like You can tell this is a group of um, visual, visual artists. Um, okay, so I actually, I have a question, which is, so it was the film department, but within that, there was the media urban crisis. Like, what, what was the structure of the program? Forgive me, I actually know. It was a new major within okay. the film school. There was an ethnographic major. There was a writing major. There was a directing specialty. And this was a course of study that you could take to get a BA. And it was, it was uh, Media Urban Crisis was the name of it? Uh, no, it was called Ethnocommunications. Ethnocommunications. Media Urban Crisis Committee was a study okay. that was campus-wide that focused on the issue of the portrayal and... Uh, stereotyping of uh, people of color. And I was on that committee, and that committee published a report uh, that was then the basis for advocating to create the ethnocommunications curriculum within the film school. So how did the rest of you learn about ethnocommunications? Like, did you, were you recruited? Were you looking at UCLA? Like, how did you become aware of the program? Um, Moctezuma and I uh, go back to La Raza in uh, East L.A., um, and uh, I had come into UCLA through the Upward Bound program, and uh, I, uh, all I had was a GED, so when I was approached to go to UCLA, which was, as Ben says, it was so foreign to me, uh, it was strange, and I said, but I barely got out of high school, and they said, don't worry about it, don't worry about it, Upward Bound will get you in. They got me in, and... Uh, I bump into Moctezuma in the hallway of Campbell Hall, and Mokta tells me about this program, and me being a button photographer, uh, I'm intrigued, and uh, Mokta drafts me into uh, uh, ethnocommunications, and that's how it begins for me. Eliseo Taylor and I recruited all the students. Oh, wow. So there were 12, four African Americans, four Asian Americans, four Chicanos, and four Native Americans, and uh, I became 13. I was not intending to be in the program. I was just organized it. But, uh, but then you're like, it looks so cool, I got to be in it? No. <laughs> not at all. No, I was, uh, I was a history major. And I took a course in California history uh, that Professor uh, Huntington wrote the textbook. And he gave me an incomplete in the final because I didn't cite his book. <laughs> and he called me in and he said, you have no future in the history department. And so I merely uh, transferred myself to graduate. So, I, you know, I, no, I had no intention of being in film. So, my Alile, how did you? We weren't there yet. Okay. I think they were there. Like and it was all, but it was still, it was still we started, communications? Yeah. We weren't part of that. We were just um, admitted to film school in 75. So all that happened before us. Yeah. And thank you very much. Yes. <laughs> yeah, thank you for the sit-in and taking All over of the office so that we could come there. Yeah, no, the, the, the ethnocommunications program persisted for about 10 years. 
and there was a continual uh, recruitment of people of color. We, we got a commitment from the um, department that 25% of it meet that people that were admitted would be people of color. And so it lasted for a while. Uh, but I, I left the, I graduated right away, 71. Mm -hmm. And I then went back to film school for graduate school again. It was accidental. I had no intention to go back. But Eliseo Taylor uh, recruited me back to go to graduate school. And so I owe him a debt of gratitude. He uh, shook me down and he says, listen, you don't know who you are. You don't know what you're doing. And I'm here to tell you, you're a producer. You get people to do things, so you're a producer. That's nice that he told you. Yeah, he told me. <laughs> and so uh, I went back and uh, trained as a producer. So why film? What, what made you want to be a filmmaker? Maybe, Ben, we can start with you. I didn't. <laughs> yeah, I was, uh, I got into, I always wanted to be an animator. So uh, I, drew, I got uh, drawn into animation. And so as soon as I um, graduated from high school, I got accepted into an art school that was run by a Disney animator. And it was a college, not a university. Mm -hmm. And so they drafted me as I was in the middle of the cha-cha. So trying to get it down. But then um, after I graduated, my... Um, one of my professors uh, suggested that I should go to film school at UCLA and I should apply. And so I applied and I got in. Uh, and so all of what these guys did, I just read about it. And the part of ethnographic that I used was just the name because it meant that we could get cheaper done black and white film at CFI. So I used the word ethnographic and it worked. Why you got involved? Yeah, Luis. I'm sorry. The question again was why film? What what made you want to be a filmmaker? Um, I I did my undergraduate work at at uh, Temple University, and I I, I was in a, um, a a film class and exposed to Akira Kurosawa's. Uh, films and when I saw it, I could not believe my eyes, and I said, "I want to do that." Don't ask me why I want to do that, but I said, "I want to do it." And so I had a choice between applying to the other school up the street that she went to, to USC or UCLA. Applied to UCLA, and somehow someone sent me to Delia Salvi, I believe that was her name, and she taught acting. Is that right? I didn't want to be an actress. I had no idea why they sent me there. And then when I went to her, she said, you don't want to be here. I happened to run across um, Larry Clark. And Larry, I was walking to one of the classes, I can't remember, and he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, you know, I'm going to be in film. And he said, are you sure you want to do this? I said, I want to do it. So he said, okay, go for it. And so that's how I ended up at UCLA. I loved film as a child. I was a little film buff. Even as a little girl, I could watch the same film over and over and over again, which definitely prepared me for film school. I, I think they had something called the Million Dollar Movie, where you could, they would show the same film like for a whole week. And I loved film, you know, and I love film now. 
And when I found out that there was such a thing as a film school, I had to go. And so I applied to USC, and I applied to UCLA, and USC accepted me for the spring. UCLA accepted me right away, so my plan was to go to UCLA and learn as much as I could and then go back to USC. So you went to both? I did my undergraduate work at USC. Okay. And when I discovered the cinema department and that you could make films, um, I was in in the cinema department because I was a journalism major, and they kicked me out. They said that um, what you're writing is not journalism, and so I... I changed to photojournalism. And so I ended up in the cinema department doing photography. And I wanted to transfer to cinema right away, but a friend recruited us to go to Brazil. And so I changed to creative writing, where I belonged, in the English department. And I decided to go to graduate school in film. It, yeah, one of the things that, that struck me also, I've watched Medea and I, the beautiful poem in the film, um, Part of the Doctrine by Amiri Baraka, and then Luis seeing your photography, like just the all of the different culture and different mediums that were impacting the work. And so I was just curious, yeah, what other, what other art and culture was impacting the work that you were producing as a student? Yeah, for me, it was mostly music. Mm. I was um, highly engaged that as a structure, even as a still photographer when I was doing my undergrad work, I, I would do all of my work under, with the bitches brew. <laughs> it was just busting out at that time, and so I was just using that as my gunner as the way to kind of work through all of the ideas and feelings because uh, he had a myriad of of feelings and colors and things that you could play around with that was really good for for my initial uh, still photography work because I I tend to I tended to uh, do stills but I also wanted to paint light onto my photographs so I ended up imbuing each photograph with more energy than just the photograph had as a way to kind of play around with color and, and chemicalizations of change that, image, that the images go through with hypo and, and uh, D, D, D78 and D76, yeah, that was it, D76 uh, developers and all of that kind of intermixing with each other and playing off the, the technology with the lights and chemicals and all of that as a way to produce a one-of-a-kind picture. And so it was a kind of fun way for a geek to play around. Please. On my part, uh, going into cinema, documentary filmmaking, uh, the photograph, the camera, the still camera, is my razón de ser. It becomes my, uh, my entree point uh, to further the capturing of image and storytelling. Uh, that is something that I began to expand upon as I got deeper into the photographic narrative, the, uh, the storytelling aspect of uh, what a singular image can do and what a continuation of images can do. And so that leads me into uh, television work, documentary work, uh, specials, 
theater, nonprofit arts organizations. All of these are uh, parts of the art culture that I enter into. But it is the still camera that allows me that entree point. And to this day, uh, it helps to define who I am and what I am. And the fact that I took all those photographs that I took has proven to be a resource for many, many documentaries and publications that are taking place. So I'm blessed in that uh, I've got an archive of eight to 15,000 negative images, both black and white and color. Um, and so KCT has been tapping into uh, my files and uh, 50 years later, I'm glad I didn't throw it out in an artistic rage, you know. <laughs> Likewise, I, um, I love documentary filmmaking, and I've always liked it because I like people's stories. I want to really get into people's stories. When I was growing up, I remember as a child interviewing, I didn't know I was really interviewing them, but I was very inquisitive about how people lived. I had a lady next door uh, growing up, and she worked Roots. And I wanted to, I wanted to, you know what I'm talking about. I wanted to know what that was about. You know, like if, if you didn't like someone, you would <laughs> sort of work, put a spell on them or whatever it was that people did. And so I was very inquisitive about it, probably too much so. And then, of course, in my, my uh, single parent family, I was just so curious as to how someone could raise three children by themselves, active children. And uh, then Alile actually uh, introduced me to Glenn in the, in the film, who was a single parent. I had never met a man who was raising his child alone. And I believe his spouse had committed suicide, yes. is that right? Yes. I, yes, I believe she had committed suicide. I was just very curious, and that's why he was in the film. And the other, uh, one of the other ladies in the film, um, I believe she also, she was, she was overwhelmed raising her children. And so she ended up going to another country for a while and leaving her children with someone else. And those stories just, you know, I was just so curious about it. And also a film that I did that I believe is archived as well was Superstitions That Athletes Have. And I just, <laughs> I, you know, being a, a sports fan to some degree, not, not really heavily into sports, but I noticed that there were, were rituals. And so I wanted to know more about it, and that's how I ended up doing those kinds of films. But I was very, very, still am very interested in documentary film. Awesome. Yeah, Mark, this one. Well, for me, filmmaking is about emotion. It's about telling a story that will evoke uh, a deep emotional response. And uh, that's what I saw was available to me as a producer, was to be able to pick the stories that moved me and that I could then uh, bring to the reality. So, and what inspired me were two movies in particular. Uh, Luis Valdez's I Am Joaquin, which is an epic poem by Corky Gonzalez that he animated and that we saw in the basement of uh, La Raza newspaper, I don't know if you were there. You may have been there. We were, I think we, we all looked at it together. Yeah. And uh, this is like 1967, 68. And it deeply moved me. And then the other movie that I saw around the same time was Battle of Algiers. 
And uh, we, again, there was a whole group of us that went and we saw it. And, and uh, the fact that the movie was uh, a historical recreation of an event that uh, was a liberation movement and the commitment of those people to, to their freedom. And that was the mood at the time. We were all in that space of being, we were revolutionaries. Uh, at that time that I had the sit-in, I was out on bail from two grand jury secret indictments. I was facing life in jail. I was on trial for four years. Uh, indicted by the grand jury for the East LA walkouts, East LA 13. A year later, I was indicted for the Biltmore Six. Uh, I was the founder of the Brown Berets, uh, along with uh, a dozen other guys. And uh, the Black Power Free Huey Newton rally of January 1968, I was one of two people who spoke and declared war on the United States and racism. Six months later, I was facing life in jail. Wow. So uh, that was, this was a moment where we believed that we could actually change the world, and we have just not as fast as we were hoping for. <laughs> yeah, so true. Yeah, I think that one of the things we know is that our work takes on a life of its own. And um, what has really impressed me about this piece is the boldness of the filmmakers to honor the generation um, Reem, I don't know how to say her name, but to have the gut, guts to show her as this generation, you know, um, creating films for Free Palestine. And in this moment, the fact that the film is released in this moment now, mm -hmm. that's a bold statement. Um, and also, I think that they have really carried on the spirit of what we did, you know, in doing that and in honoring us. So I'm very proud. I didn't give birth to them, but um, I'm proud of them as if, like, they're my children, like the people who, the young people that put this together. And I'm really proud of them for featuring her, you know, so. That's amazing. So they're carrying on your, the spirit of <laughs> his spirit. Yeah, it's really interesting what, uh, like, last year at this time, Portugal had a Palestinian young lady show with the LA Rebellion and okay. dealt with I thought that was, it's a kind of synchronicity in mm -hmm. a strange way. It's like, I thought it was weird that they were doing the kind of comparisons, but not really once mm -mm. it started rolling is because no. we are in a kind of open prison, open air prison here in the US. Yes. You know, and uh, we're kind of monitored a little bit like that. Mm -hmm. and, <laughs> we are and, constantly monitored. Yeah. yeah. And I, I can now see why they were, uh, they showed up, uh, Montezuma. Because <laughs> it was, the, the Cano was also Latino, and he was coming from the Latino, uh, from East L.A. also. He had just strictly come from there to our screening, and he was told us that she kind of were being looked at. And so it's interesting. You know, we're just little students. I'm like from New Mexico, and so it's just so wild that uh, that you get focused on like this as just young students trying to to make a way out of no way and uh, get accepted at a school where you can finally 
tell your people's story, and then you have to go under this kind of bullcrap in order to just the FBI. <laughs> like that's wild. That's yeah. a very astonishing thing. Yeah. Yeah, because he said that they had just left the East LA, and then they were wanting to come to our side to see what was up. So it was just interesting. And so the same thing with the Palestinians and then just the comparison with the Portuguese, what they were doing with our work was making a comparison of looking at our work, uh, what, 400 years later after they made that aha moment of grabbing us and taking us to the American continent. Uh, and, uh, and then they wanted to see what that had wrought. And our work was an example of what the diasporan youth and people created after parents of the folks that they took, the children of the people that they took, what, is, what kind of work and stuff were they doing? And then the kind of comparison they made was with, Portugal, with, with us, the LA Rebellion, and Gaza, <laughs> which is interesting for us. The cross-generational, intergenerational aspect of us on stage you in the audience, uh, there is no separation. Uh, we are conduits. Uh, our experiences, whatever the field of study or our endeavors are, unites us all together. I have found that after 50, 60 years now of doing the work that I continue to do, as my compatriots here on stage continue to do, um, we're on file, all of us. Uh, the one thing that we used to do uh, at La Raza magazine during all these demonstrations and events that we photographed, um, we would photograph uh, those who were photographing us from whatever uh, agency the government uh, uh, was monitoring us with, be it the LAPD, the FBI, the CIA, uh, the SWAT, whatever. The, we were photographing them. And we'd have a, a first name basis with many of them. Um, Hi, how are you doing? Okay, um, you got your cuffs with you? Okay. Uh, we'll be seeing each other later on today because it's going to get nasty. And uh, many times at these events, you never knew what was going to happen. And so you pack up your cameras, load your film, and uh, it was like going into a war zone. You didn't know what was going to happen. You didn't know if you were going to be jailed, beaten, uh, or whatever, but the, the task was to monitor it, to photograph it. And I think, as Moctezuma said, on Requiem 29, that project united uh, all of the uh, students. And it became a joint project. And I think that was the wonderful thing about uh, ethno-communications, is that it allowed us to enter each other's space into each other's communities and see each other as uh, a unified voice wherever we could unify and bring forth our messages independent of each other or united with each other. And I think that's the thing that goes on to this day, which is it's uh, the, the constant element which you... Uh, <clears throat> I don't have a bottle of wine here because I'll wrap on, but um, it's, it's that ability of the, the, the system to divide and conquer, which is an old tactic. Uh, but what has happened is that it's really unified us. Uh, it's brought us closer together. Uh, 
as evident in the streets today and throughout the world. So I think the work that we do as communicators is very important. I think that what is uh, singular about us that are sitting up here and, and our fellow students is that we actually got a film education and we learned a set of skills that we were able to then use. And our brothers and sisters today have a real challenge. Film school is $85,000 a year. It's the same as going to med school. Uh, it's the same as uh, any other professional track. And it's very difficult to get admitted today. UCLA, for 30 slots, gets 2,000 applications in the film school. Uh, I'm on the executive board of the UCLA Film School. I've been on it for a while. And we're working right now to figure out how to make it affordable and accessible again. And um, in the next, it's going to take a couple of years, but we're working on creating a transfer track from the community colleges uh, so that students take five courses and they'll then get a preferential uh, ability to transfer into UCLA as juniors. So I'm hoping that we're going to get that done. I've been working on it for quite a few years, and it looks like we finally have gotten the cooperation of both the dean and uh, the chancellor of the community college district, and this will happen. And we will then have the ability for people to, at least their first two years, be able to afford. And at that point, if they get into the film school, we're also working on putting together scholarships so that they don't graduate with any debt. Uh, and that's, that's the key. You'll remember that uh, I got you guys jobs. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> that was part of my job. Say I recruited them, and then I got them work-study jobs where they didn't have to show up. To which I've got to say, um, Mama, rest in peace, uh, when she lived with me for a while, um, she'd look at me in the kitchen table, and I've got scripts and computer and uh, a calculator, and I'm, I got reams of paper, and she'd look at me and she'd just go, "Ay, mijo." You work so hard, but you don't make no money. <laughs> you should become a dentist. They never run out of teeth. Well, the, the one, the, one of the lines in the documentary that's so arresting is when, and forgive, forgive me for maybe not saying his name right, Haley Grima says, no. we, <laughs> we graduated into a desert, white kids graduated into an industry. That's just like, wow. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, I... I felt a little bit uncomfortable about that because as you were looking at the movies and the posters, three of my posters are up there. Well, that's one of the, the one of the tensions of the film is the, is like the independent film versus commercial film and Moctezuma, I feel like you've had feet, your feet in both worlds. Like, I wonder what you think of that tension. Well, I can't, I can't say that uh, Hollywood rejected me. I have over 50 movie credits. You know, I've done more than 20 large-scale Hollywood productions. Uh, I did Gettysburg, right? I did Dorothy Dandridge with Halle Berry. 
I did Cisco Kid. I did uh, uh, Selena. I did Walkout. You know, I did a whole bunch of movies that I'm, I'm very thankful that I was able to do that. And I started a cable TV company. And I had 15,000 customers, right? In Buena Vision, East LA, I brought cable TV to East LA, right? And I had a studio. I financed over 100 movies. I, I lost it. I got killed by uh, the bankruptcy of Blockbuster. That took down my company. And uh, now I've started a movie theater circuit. I have uh, 88 screens in six locations. And I'm about to build several more. So I can't say that it can't be done because I did it. One of the, the other scene that's very moving to me is seeing every, people walk the halls. Like what, for you, Ben, what was the, the experience of being back at the building? <clears throat> well, it is interesting for me because I did, um, I did try to do Hollywood. I, I worked as an intern with Peter Goober for about three years, and I didn't get that kind of an entrance uh, into our work. <laughs> it was uh, really pretty aggressive with him uh, on, on me not bowing down. Uh, and uh, I felt the same thing. I did an uh, internship with Columbia Pit, uh, Capital Records, and I later we pitched a deal with them with a group of kids that I had from... Project Blood with an out al- a record album, and they wrote out a deal for them, and they then retracted it a year later because they said hip hop was dead. Mom, and and kept the Beastie Boys, you know. Uh, so that's the kind of walls that I ran into as trying to get in the Hollywood game. Uh, but that's just me because you know I'm a little bit different. Uh, and so that was what I ran into. But going into the hallways, I, I can really just say one thing. I felt blessed to be at UCLA because of the equipment and all of the things in that hallway. I'd spent 10 years there, and I was able to do all the dreams that I could ever have dreamed of, and it didn't have to be Hollywood. Right. You know, I didn't need Hollywood for my satiation and my... My mentor through it all was Ivan Dixon, and I also got to uh, work with um, Melvin Bad Peebles on a couple of Hollywoods where, it, uh, where I worked on Sophisticated Jits, uh, which was an interesting thing. But all of those ended up being really not too cool to the black guys that they were working with because they, f- they fired Ivan Dixon and gave uh, Marlon Brando more money than the person that directed it. And, It was just, uh, and it was a black movie. (laughs) It was just on and on. I just saw nothing but screwing going on in in the system that I always tried to to get in. So that was, that's my experience with it. And I did, I I don't dislike Hollywood. I tried to see how we could work with it, but they never offered me a angle that I could take. Um, And so that's just me. No, I, I, I didn't get accepted by Hollywood. I, I had to break down the doors myself, right? And I think what, what is perhaps different is that I had a training as an organizer. And as that training, right, because I was trained by the people that trained Cesar Chavez, and I was on the march with Cesar in 1966 when I was 15, 
So my entire background is, was trained to, how do you get things organized? How do you get things done? Right, so I learned how to do independent films right out of college. And I spent 10 years doing documentaries and low budget independent projects uh, until I did the Ballad of Gregorio Cortez. And then the Ballad of Gregorio Cortez uh, achieved enough critical acclaim uh, that uh, I was able to then propel my career. Mm. But I did it by creating my own company and getting my own projects financed until the point that the studios then started backing my projects. So it's, um, it's a singular path. I, you know, I don't know if anybody else can use that useful uh, information, I mean, that it's useful to anybody. But I think our collective feelings our collective way of going at it is because, you know, like I've been able to buy buildings and move within things, but it's within the context of, of being independent. But, but my life isn't over. We're going to have a lot more fun. <laughs> I didn't know what I wanted to do after I finished film school, but I knew I wanted to make money and make a decent living. I, I also knew I did not want to be, be in Hollywood, you know, the L.A. thing. And so it took a while for me to figure out what I wanted to do, which is why I went to law school. Because I just thought, you know, I can't make any money doing, you know, producing my own films and all of that. Um, it, when, when I was at UCLA, the reason why I was in video is because I couldn't afford film. And... As I said, I, I would get, you guys would give me your videos that you shot on, they shot on video and then would give the videos to me and I would erase the videos. <laughs> it's the truth. I erased them and then I shot my videos for my projects. And that's how I got through. Because I was really poor. You guys must have had money no, going through school. No, we didn't have any money. <laughs> so I, I don't know how we made these films no, because... Really. Didn't I just tell you we that had no money. <laughs> well, we didn't I didn't have any money. Yeah. Well, what what I ended up doing is I worked through school and I used the 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 uh, the money that they gave us for our, our work study for our work studies and yeah. all of that. E even my grant, I used all yeah. of my grant money to pay for the film because I knew it was only one chance that I was getting yeah. in this world. And so I used all of the money, and I had to explain to my wife that this money is going toward why I got in school, and that I'll work just like as if I didn't get the grant. So that's how I, I ended up making it through, and I did counseling for veterans as a way to go through school, and so I had a city job along with going through college at the same time. Well, you should have written a book or something and passed it down because I didn't have the benefit of that information. Well, I'm glad you say that because no. I just finished you the book. Oh, that's right. That's right. He did. That's, yeah. that's, um, that's a, that's a, which, by the out. way, is called Chaos Theory. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, he did, he well, did write it down. That, that's a how-to book. And, yeah. uh, Ben has his how-to book. Mokta has his how-to book. We all got a how-to yeah. book. Uh, and the trajectory that each of us evidently has gone through to get to this stage uh, is, is different. Yeah. And uh, you find your, your focus, as Mokta has, as Ben has, as 
you all have, as I have, uh, you know, I've come back to my origins uh, as a photographer. And, uh, it, but the pathway brings you to all of these other areas. Uh, each of us has uh, refined and polished ourselves with the experiences of the decades that we've been through, managing to stay in that field that we love intellectually and spiritually. And so I look at that, and uh, I'm blessed to be here with all of these storytellers. And that, to me, is really the prime reason to continue, because I view myself <coughs> and others here as conduits. I just am an electrical charge passing it on. The baton is passed on to that next generation. And uh, this documentary and other documentarians who are doing the work with uh, PBS and KCT are a perfect example of that baton passing process. So thank you, yes. PBS. Yeah, yes. yeah and it, which, by the way, it was nice working with the UCLA posse like Byron and Kitty them on putting this together. Good job. Yeah. Good job. Some ex UCLA folks. Yeah. Yes. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> right, and, and of now, course, Nick. You know, I, I did marvel at the fact that everyone in this documentary was connected to UCLA Film School. And it gives sort of the impression like somehow we were the uh, uh, monopolizing these opportunities. But there were many other people in the late 60s and early 70s who made a difference. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, certainly Jesus Trevino mm -hmm. and uh, Luis Ruiz, who did go to UCLA, yeah. uh, and uh, Jeff Pinochet, who went to UCLA, mm -hmm. and uh, Gregory Nava, who went to UCLA, who did El Norte, Brian, several others. Brian Selena. Maeda. Brian Maeda. Uh, We're going to open it up to questions for the audience in the last couple of minutes that we have. So does anyone have a question? So it's more than just UCLA as a point. I wasn't ready that fast. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I think this is wonderful. Um, I, my name is Deisha Deshawn. I went to UCLA in the late 90s. I'm a UCI professor, um, and I teach in an LA Rebellion class. Um, I've had Alile at, <laughs> on board, and we've, we've interviewed um, Haile, who was a professor of mine at Howard University, and Sharik and Zainabu, um, and we show the works of Julie and Charles. And um, so this is great to see this, um, the ethno-communications connection to the LA Rebellion, because our focus has always been on the black filmmakers, usually. Um, and so it's good, to, and I'm, I'm so glad that you guys were able to um, incorporate uh, Jacqueline Stewart, because we were following a lot of Jacqueline Stewart's work and Allison's um, work. But one question I do have, it's around the, the desert, you know, graduating into the desert comment. Because I feel like, I love that this expands, because before I think we only had like Jocelyn Luckett's writing around the ethno-communications program. Of course, we all know that visual communications is a branch of that. We take our students to the Asian American Film Festival, so we're all very well connected with that. But what I felt was missing 
um, and would give context to that particular statement is how the, the black filmmakers that were making films at UCLA at this time we're making films at the same time that the black exploitation movement is keeping Hollywood afloat. So I think what's interesting about that comment is like, well, if you're making community-based films that have a heart, if you're telling your grandmother's story, then perhaps you are coming into a desert because there is no space for that. And so that was the one thing I felt like was a little, I was wondering kind of like maybe what was the thought about how your films fit up against what was happening in Hollywood at that time. Maybe later things changed because again, um, Killer of Sheep was at that time and it was a student film. Bush Mama was at that time and it was a student film. Haile goes on to make Sankofa in the 90s. Julie Dash makes um, Daughters of the Dust in the 90s. To Sleep With Anger is in the 90s. So we're talking about 20 years later, these films um, are independently produced by these filmmakers. So just curious about how Hollywood was receiving the work and how you guys felt coming out then, the, and this, so this idea of a desert, maybe anyone can speak to that. Um, one of the things that I always had trouble with was that there were people who took our films, um, Pearl Bowser, who we just lost earlier this month, um, Mamie Clayton, uh, Clyde, Clyde Taylor, the programmers, and so forth. Um, it's like we weren't allowed to have student films. They knew the whole picture where we were historically, and so I, I felt like they just snatched my films and they put them out in the world. So even though um, we weren't recognized by Hollywood, we were recognized as the next generation of filmmakers when you look at the history of black film. And they knew who we were. I, did, I was just trying to go to film school and live my film school dream. So it's like, I, I always felt like I'm learning in public. Like people are at, acting like they're comparing my work to the work they see in Hollywood because it's like we weren't, they weren't really allowed to just be student films. For us, they were real films. When you look at our work historically, and so the professors, the film programmers, the people who were teaching our films um, you know, at universities, who were creating all the festivals and so forth, it's because of them that you know that we exist. Because if they hadn't done that, since we were not really recognized in Hollywood, like they would say, I mean, I, I remember going to a screening and the little boy asked his mom, can we go see a real film? You know, so it's like, we were so, it's so different from now where people are used to seeing all kinds of film because of the internet. And, and um, so everyone, again, the whole world is film school now because people are used to seeing short films they're used to seeing um, documentaries. But at that time, we were new. You know, it was different. And I always felt that we were, they acted like we had the same budgets that they have in Hollywood mm. when they would screen our films. And you never knew how someone was going to react to your film. Like the first time that I showed the film that they featured here, which is still censored, because I say we're censored. We were kind of erased. 
and that might have something to do with Ben saying the FBI wanted to look at the at our films, and so like you never really saw our work, um, but like the first time that I showed your children come back to you, um, Barbara McCullough had a presentation where she showed women's films. And after the screening, and then we were always worried that the film was going to break. You know, like those were the different technical things that we had to deal with. Like, or if you didn't have enough money to have, have a um, print where you had the sound and print together, so they would be screening your soundtrack and they'd be screening your film. And so like you're nervous about all of that. And then you never know how someone's going to react because Ben Caldwell and, and Larry and Charles, they nurtured us and they took care of us and they encouraged us. But when you went out in public, I remember this woman came up to me. It was, this was a black woman. And she told me that she worked in Hollywood. And she told me my film was the worst thing she had ever seen. Oh and that was like, <laughs> you know, the first time I'm screening it in public. And what, what do you say? Like, now I would say, oh, well, let's talk about that. Like, you know, what didn't you like about it or whatever? Or that's your opinion. But at the time, our work was, like, so personal. So I went home from that screening with that comment. Now, there was a woman, Joanne, I never met her, Joanne Bogliani or something. She was a writer for the Women's Building. They had a um, paper called Spinning Off. She was there. And so, like, I sat with the insult all that fall. But in January of the next year, she had written a review that was so beautiful. And she had a whole different experience. She said that the film really moved her and so forth. And I used her review for, like, my promo materials. But that's what we went out to. We didn't know how people were going to react to our work if they were going to be supportive, or if they were going to attack us. And they were constantly comparing our work to Hollywood. So. <laughs> also, you must remember at that time, there was uh, independent films, screening facilities. There was a whole movement going on that way. And so a lot of our work also showed within those contexts. Mm. And uh, for my work, it's mostly experimental looking, so my work did pretty well within the experimental genre uh, because it pushed it, so it showed in museums and colleges and stuff like that, so we could go on tour. The place that really helped to me, us the most, was Catherine Ruel, who was mentioned in this, when they had the retrospective of African-American films in Paris uh, in 1979. We got to hang out with like Pearl Bowser and all these folks that she's mentioning here. And we got to chew the fat with them and make plans and think about things. And uh, that's where I met um, uh, the Hudland family. Uh, they were, we got to talk over coffee in Paris. And <laughs> so it was just interesting to, to, to get our work shown in that major form for five weeks in Paris. Uh, and so it imbued us. And so after that, as Larry said, every other country did retrospectives of our work. And then 
they ended up showing our work as a contrast for the stuff that you were talking about. The, they were saying they're doing this bull crap in, in America. So like one of the questions that they asked me that I thought was very telling is like, why aren't they trying to do movies like jazz? Why are they trying to do it like so commercially backwards with, with the black exploitation films? They weren't telling the stories like blues and jazz did. Uh, they didn't keep that tradition. So that's been my whole focus as a teacher is to kind of like at CalArts, I taught 15 years of that of how to let's let's change the modalities of how we create our work because they're done trying to copy the colonizers in the sense of structures. Mm. We have time for one more question. Okay, I have to stand up. Okay, um, so I was actually like a PA on this set and I um, didn't see like the whole process of it being edited, but it was really cool to like just be a part of it for a little bit. And I wanted to ask you all, as a young filmmaker myself, something that I get really concerned about with like the state of the industry, but also like the keeping sort of like the movement and intention behind our work is there is this... Um, commercialization now of of like stories um, you know this um, you know they that Hollywood is, like cares about putting out diverse stories but doesn't but I'll, oftentimes we see like um, not like true investment in our communities and not like true agency over our own stories and I'm concerned about like these studio executives that are like taking up so much power and space, I worry about like independent cinema and I worry about like um, what it means when when um, people of color are sucked into those things and get like sucked into the apparatus of thinking like, you know, movies like Barbie are somehow like radical feminism and it's actually, actually it's just Wigs 101 if you've been to a university. So I just wonder about that, like how um, those framings are changing right now and it's happening at such a rapid pace, like streaming is changing everything, like, um, you know, and then AI, right? There's, there's so much that I'm concerned about as like a filmmaker focused on craft and it seems like right as filmmakers of color are reaching parity. It's like, oh, we're going to undercut your work and we're not actually going to give you agency and we're going to make you have all these concessions and we're not going to give you, like, we're going to use, we're going to go with, like, we're not going to, like, value the, the the labor that you provide, like, with the strikes, with everything that's been going on as extensionally in, like, Hollywood and filmmaking. Sorry, that was, like, a really long question, but that's all. The... The word Hollywood is overused in this conversation. It is one outlet within an industry that has certain distribution m modules. Uh, Moctezuma, as he has said, is broken through by doing his approach to it and making the alliances and the collaborations with financial and distribution outlets necessary for independent filmmaking and for Hollywood filmmaking. Ben has chosen his path. I came out of UCLA uh, and I didn't graduate. I went into television work and I started learning how to do television documentaries and it was sink or swim. 
every other week I had to produce a half an hour program. And so we had to write the story, create the story within a three, four day set, capture the imagery, and move on to the next project. So it is a training ground. You currently, you, in terms of uh, all the technology that is available, have that ability to craft your eye, to craft your story sensibility. Uh, though you may not be going to school, you have the elements to enter into uh, storytelling. Do your research, do your work, uh, learn, study others. Uh, Akira Kurosawa was uh, a mentor uh, to me as well. Uh, Gordon Parks was a mentor to me as well. Um, Alvarez Bravo, uh, any number of photographers, cinematographers, uh, periods of times were influences to me that I had access to within that technology of that era. You, at this point now, have a broad array, an incredible array of technology by which you can begin to craft, if you so desire to do so, you can go to your own film school. There's enough courses online. Instagram is great. I love going to Instagram in the middle of the night. I wake up and I'm going, wow, look what they just did on Instagram. And it's a one-minute piece or it's a five-minute piece. But you can see already they're crafting a storyline. Mm -hmm. They're using animation. They're using uh, the visual sensibility. They're using the narrative. They're using the music. They're using all the compositional elements necessary for storytelling. Remember, it's storytelling. Well, thank you so much. We're out of time. This has been amazing. Thank you so much. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.